Welcome to the Historias Podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. Francisco Franco, after defeating the Republican forces in the Civil War, ruled Spain as dictator for almost 40 years, from 1939 to 1975. He is thus one of modern European history's most important and most controversial figures, and his long life spanned periods of colonial conflict, world war, and post-war economic growth. Today, I'm joined by Stanley Payne, Hildale Jaime Vicente Vives Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Madison to discuss some of the insights he offers on Franco's life and times in his recent biography of the dictator, Franco, a personal and political biography, co-written with Jesus Palacios. So Professor Payne, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Now, at the time that you wrote this book, there were already several lengthy biographies of Franco available. So why did you want to write this new one? Uh, basically two reasons, uh, partly adventitious and serendipitous. Uh, one was uh, that new material was um, becoming available by that time, which made it possible to do a, a somewhat better informed approach. The other was simply because I was invited to participate in the preparation of a documentary on Franco being done by an independent uh, uh, British documentary developer and was invited by Franco's daughter to uh, ask the questions at, at for the documentary. And so this provided a, a period for a long question, series of question and answer sessions, uh, many hours in fact, of which we only used a small amount. Documentary never appeared but that is what got me, got me going on the topic. And uh, Jesus Palacios and I did write a, uh, did publish a book about the material from Carmen Franco. And that led us on to the full length biography. In addition, of course, there were the further sources available that made it possible to do a somewhat more authentic biography. Uh, and uh, one that uh, would have uh, more scholarly efficacy than done up to that time. You mentioned that several new sources um, became available to you, which is one of the reasons why you pursued this book. Um, things that allowed you to gain new insights on Franco's personal life in particular. So could you tell us a bit more about what those uh, sources were? Well, uh, the most important simply was that the Franco archive of Franco's surviving papers and a lot of other material that passed his desk had become fully available. This had been restricted for a considerable period of time. It was operating virtually as a kind of private archive. And that did become fully available at a certain point around about uh, oh, uh, 2005 uh, to me and then to other scholars. And now, of course, it's all available online. But at that time, it was new material. So this was the most important documentary collection. Uh, and then, of course, along with that are, are a lot of uh, secondary material and, and uh, other data that simply appears in the, in the nature of historiography that helped flesh out secondary points in the way of published material. Franco archive was the most important single thing. Franco's life was uh, quite long and your biography of him quite extensive. And so we're not going to be able to cover all the major points that you make in your book here. But what I wanted to do was highlight a few areas where I think that your research sheds lights on some of the many debates that historians have long had about him. So to begin with, 
it seems to me that the sources that you just discussed especially aided you in describing Franco's early life. So what was Franco's childhood like and how would you describe his personality in that period? Franco had uh, a, a conventional childhood with uh, several siblings, two brothers and, and a sister. Uh, the drama of Franco's life, which was in part uh, simply that of a normal, slightly upper middle class life in a provincial setting at the main naval base in El Ferrol in Galicia, was really the, the split between his father and his mother. There were two very different kinds of people. Both influenced him, his mother more than his father. She was devout and loving and Catholic and traditional, uh, a typical kind of uh, keeper of the household and uh, nurturing mother uh, to whom he remained devoted all his life, but the main uh, impact on him. And a, a, a naval father who reached the rank of counter admiral of the Spanish Navy, uh, and uh, quite unusually for naval officers, was kind of a libertine and a free thinker and in some ways a somewhat dissolute man. Uh, and so this complete split between his two parents was really the drama of Franco's life. And he was more influenced by his mother than by his father. You might say that his father was a kind of a, a negative influence on him. He was determined not to be the kind of person that his father was, but to uh, exceed his father and form the kind of stellar military career that he did not think his father had had. So that was the real personal drama from Franco's background. It was not an unhappy childhood uh, and his two brothers and he got along perfectly well. There was no major rivalry. They both had very distinguished careers. His younger brother became the Spanish Charles Lindbergh. In 1928, he was the famous Franco, not Francisco, his brother Ramon, was the one known all over the Spanish speaking world. Uh, so they, they were an achieving family, all three boys, and even the only sister uh, who did not have a career outside her home, but gave birth to and raised to adulthood 10 children. That's a major accomplishment by itself. I should say so. Now, of course, um, Franco joins the military and his experiences fighting in Spain's colonial conflicts in northern Morocco in the 1910s and 20s have long been identified as his formative period. What lessons do you think he learned in Morocco and how did they shape him? Uh, he, he learned several important things in Morocco. We have to keep in mind that the Spanish military experience in Morocco was a typical kind of irregular colonial war. She was not commanding large numbers of troops, but I would say the two most important things were not just what he learned about tactics and combat, because later he would be commanding at a much higher level, First of all, he learned not courage because there were many courageous men. Franco had what you would call nerve. That is, he learned not to lose his head, but to keep calm and to think rationally and clearly in tight and difficult situations and figure the best way to win or the best way out if you were in a negative circumstance. So he learned nerve as well as courage. Uh, and then he learned the practice of command. Uh, it's one thing to give orders. It's another thing to know how to deal with subordinates at several different levels uh, and have them uh, effectively do what you order them to do, uh, which is not a matter of merely being authoritarian, but understanding the interface between troops on the one hand, junior officers, and a senior commander. 
These were the things I think that he learned in, in Morocco that were most important to his later career. So let's take a brief pause and then we'll take a look at Franco's years in the Spanish Civil War itself. So Franco is perhaps the name that we most associate with the Spanish Civil War. But how involved was he in planning for the military rebellion of July 1936 that actually began the war? There were multiple contradictions here. Franco uh, was, was not a, a liberal or a Democrat. He believed a more authoritarian style of government, and uh, he was a monarchist. On the other hand, he accepted the fact after the first few weeks that the Republic was the law of the land, and he was above all a man of law and order. So that paradoxically, while the Republic lasted, what Franco wanted really was the effective administration of the Republican constitution and a system of Republican law and order. And he served the Republic loyally for five years. Uh, and even after things began to break down under the revolutionary impetus of 1936, he counseled his fellow military actors to be very careful and go very slow because the idea of a military insurrection to overthrow the existing government was a very chancy circumstance and something that well might go awry. It should only be considered in the very final instance if there was no possible other way out. So he was always a voice for moderation and for going slow, and he refused to, to commit himself to the insurrection until the very last minute. The turning point, everyone agrees, was the kidnapping uh, and murder of the leading spokesman of the political opposition in Parliament, Calvo Sotelo, by the Republican police on the 13th of July, 1936. Uh, just 24 hours before, Franco had sent a, another message from his command post in the Canary Islands saying that the time was not right for doing anything like that. They should still continue to go slow and be careful. After the uh, murder of Carlos Sotelo, he sent another message within just a few hours saying the time had come. They should not delay a, a single moment, but go ahead and strike as soon as possible. So he joined the insurrection at the very last minute, only after the final turning point with the killing of Carlos Sotelo. Now, Franco went from being just one of the rebel generals in July 1936 to the leader of the entire rebellion by October of the same year. So how did he accomplish that? Uh, there is some controversy about this because we have no primary documentation. We have only the versions given by several people participated in it, and they present only their own point of view or what they want to be believed. Franco's strength lay from the fact that he commanded the army in Morocco, from the Canary Islands to Morocco. This was the only combat experienced, uh, really combat-ready part of the Spanish army. They were very small in number with only 22,000 troops, but it was the most important single part. So we had a very strong power base. The people who nominated Franco for commander-in-chief were, first of all, the monarchists who wanted to have a strong leader who might prepare for the return of the monarchy 
and knew that Franco was, at least in his ideal thinking, uh, pro-monarchist, though he had been a Republican general, and then his personal entourage, who lobbied with other uh, leading commanders to have him named commander-in-chief. But the question at issue when the leading generals got together in September 1936, going into the third month of the Civil War, really was the fact that they needed a unified military command. So the question was the military command and selecting their most important general for the military commander-in-chief. They were not making a dictator for life. What happened next then was the lobbying by some of Franco's people, including his brother, who, who was really his main agent to say that, of course, you can't be military commander-in-chief if you don't also run the government. And in the second instance, to get the generals to agree that he would run the government. From there then, when the inauguration took place of Franco as commander-in-chief on the 1st of October, 1936, he was simply announced not merely as military commander-in-chief, but as chief of state. So there was an inflation in the process. We don't understand every detail and every step in the inflation of the process, but one thing flowed from the other, so that he became not merely military commander-in-chief, which virtually everyone agreed to, but then he became the head of the government, he became the dictator, and some of his fellow generals we know really didn't like that and really didn't agree with that, but they were in a situation that was very complicated in which one thing had led to another and they considered it most prudent and effective simply to go along with the situation at least as long as the war lasted. Now, the, the argument is often made about Franco during the war itself that he wasn't a very good general and he's particularly criticized for not marching directly from Madrid at the beginning of the war, but instead taking Badajoz and Toledo first, which gave the Republicans time to prepare for their successful defense of the capital in the fall of 1936. Do you think this is a valid criticism? Yes and no. Uh, Franco was aiming for Madrid and he was trying to win the war fairly fast by relying a very small elite military force, especially. But he could not proceed uh, without creating a, a secure power base under him and organizing military logistics along the road to Madrid. He did need to secure the frontier with Portugal. He probably made a mistake by uh, turning aside for several days to relieve the, the defenders of the Alcázar of Toledo, which had become the great international drama of the fighting at that particular point. He would have been better advised to go directly for Madrid those few days in which a detour was made. The basic problem was that he simply was trying to do too much with too little and it didn't quite work. Madrid became the main bulwark of, of the Republican cause and they concentrated their forces there. He simply did not have uh, uh, enough manpower to take it, tried to outflank it, did not turn it into a Stalingrad, uh, but did make several efforts to outflank it using the indirect approach and then proceeded uh, to a step-by-step -step conquest of other parts of Republican territory. Was he a good general? Generals are good if they win. Franco won and never lost a battle. Uh, it said that strategy is done by amateurs while generals of military men, the real professionals do logistics. Franco was a professional and he did logistics very well. He built up his forces 
uh, very systematically step by step and was always prepared for every battle. Uh, so that uh, he followed very much the same strategy that the Allies did in, in World War II. They did not begin by trying to invade Germany. They realized they were not in a position to invade Germany. And it's just, instead, they started the war not in Europe, but in North Africa. They provided a very peripheral approach. And Franco realized after failing to take Madrid at first, that he followed the peripheral approach and began to conquer uh, the various regions of Spain step by step, a process that turned out to be completely successful. Might it have been done more rapidly? Yes, with a little luck and a little imagination, probably a little more rapidly. On the other hand, it's hard to quarrel with complete success in the enterprise. Yes, well, and, and that was the other question that I wanted um, to ask you about the Civil War, because even the, during the war itself, uh, his German and Italian allies in particular criticized him for advancing uh, too slowly and fighting a reactive rather than an offensive war. You know, did they have a point there, or do you think he was um, rather deliberate in the way in which he went fairly slowly, that gradual conquest of Spain, in which Madrid was never actually taken militarily? Uh, Franco was was very deliberate in the way that he proceeded. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the original march to Madrid, though it was the object, uh, took a lot of time because of, of the limitations of, of his forces and his determination to, to build a, an adequate supply base uh, to back them up. Uh, and then in the, the uh, peripheral strategy that was followed later on in the Civil War, he was very deliberate because he was looking for the weak link, which was go going to turn the balance of power. He was successful in, in that, but it took time. Uh, he also had two other political uh, considerations, one psychological and one international. The psychological was that in a civil war, he believed that morale and prestige were very important. And he never wanted to lose a battle anywhere. So he would divert forces from his main operations to prevent a secondary defeat in some secondary sector of operations. This annoyed the Germans, for example, a great deal. They said, give up on that and simply concentrate on the main thing. But Franco would not give up on anything. He was determined to be victorious uh, anywhere. Uh, perhaps that was a mistake, but it followed a kind of systematic philosophy that he had. The other factor had to do, of course, with international considerations. He was in a situation after the first two years of the war to strike into Catalonia and seal off all the French border. He seems to have had the concern that he really should not approach the French border too soon or too directly or in a threatening way because of the danger of French military intervention. We know the French government in March 1938 did discuss in its cabinet meetings intervening militarily in Spain, though decided against it. Franco's critics say, well, he learned about that and he shouldn't have worried about it. Well, maybe he should not have, but he was determined to avoid international complications. And so he did worry about it. And instead he moved in a different direction, which was more secondary and slower rather than faster. So the deliberate approach step-by-step was what Franco chose. He was not an imaginative commander. He was very well organized, very deliberate, very well organized. And everything that he did with the exception of the initial assault on Madrid worked. So it's hard in some ways to quarrel with success, but the fast strike 
and the very daring, risky kind of operation was not the way that Franco proceeded. He did not run big risks most of the time. Let's take another brief pause and then we'll take a look at his years as dictator. It is well known that Franco toyed with joining the war on the Axis side. Some praised Franco for cleverly appeasing Hitler without a serious intention of joining, while others say he came dangerously close to making what would have been a disastrous decision. What does your research reveal about how close Franco actually came to entering the war? Franco came fairly close to entering the war, but he did not take the plunge, and that was the important thing. Major concern here to be perfectly clear about is that Franco was never neutral in World War II. That is, he did not enter the war. And in that sense, he was a technical neutral in terms of the direct the declaration of official hostilities. But he wasn't neutral in terms of personal preferences. He was definitely uh, favoring the Axis side. And he did a variety of secondary things to foster Axis interests and bolster the Axis cause uh, in terms of uh, support at sea, uh, intelligence, uh, economic policy, uh, in sending uh, a division to the uh, Russian front in the East, uh, and a variety of secondary matters. So uh, he favored the Axis cause. And finally, in 1943, after it was clear that Franco was never going to enter the war, uh, when the German ambassador had a long talk with him in Madrid and reproached him for not really having come out directly uh, in uh, officially uh, joining and supporting the Axis side, Franco insisted, I think quite authentically to the German ambassador, that in fact he had done everything he could to help the Axis except to enter the war. And in fact, given the military weakness of Spain and particularly its economic weakness, in such a complicated war. Had he entered it, he would have been more of an obstacle than a help to the Axis side. And he had done the best that he could, given his circumstances, to make things better for the Germans. Uh, that's probably uh, quite an honest summary of the way things really worked as far as Spanish policy was concerned. There was, the, 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 the initial turning point came in 1940. The fall of France uh, determined Franco that uh, the Germans were going to win the war and that he should be on the winning side. But he had to have a lot of military support. He couldn't just enter the war. Spain was in an exposed position at the mercy of the Royal Navy, particularly uh, geostrategically. He had to have a lot of German military support and he had to have a lot of German economic support. And he also wanted control of all of Morocco for a new Spanish empire. And Hitler was simply not in a position to give these things. After their one meeting at Andes, uh, at the end of October 1940, Franco considered it very carefully, drew up plans of how, how things might proceed. It would be necessary, perhaps, to take over Portugal and so forth, and really decided that it was just too big a chunk to bite. Even if Hitler had given him everything that he asked for, then he might still have done it. Hitler could not do that. And so some Spanish historians even so the, 
say it was Hitler, not Franco, who made the decision because he wouldn't meet all of Franco's demands. But Franco's demands were very steep. Uh, so Hitler had a real problem there. Uh, and he passed the crucial moment by late in 1940, in the early part of 1941. And then after the success of the Allied landings in Northern Africa in November 1942, began to draw further and further into uh, more of a de facto neutral position, which then did become officially neutral and even pro-Allied in the middle of 1944, when he saw that Germany really had lost the war. But Franco was, was not at all as neutral as uh, his uh, supporters have sometimes claimed. Uh, and he wasn't always really prudent. Uh, he took risks in favoring aspects of German policy uh, so that uh, he was lucky that it worked out for him as well as it did. But he made, of course, the crucial mistake that Mussolini did, which was officially entering the war. He did not do that. No. If we move to the end of World War II and throughout the period of the 1950s, we see Franco doing a real about face from being aligned with the fascist powers, as you mentioned, to signing an agreement actually with the United States. So how did he accomplish this turnaround? It proceeded slowly and by phases, as was typical of Franco. He realized with the overthrow of Mussolini in 19. 43, in the middle of the war, that he's going to have to take a more prudent political ideological position. So that was the point at which he began to downgrade the Falange, his own political party, which was modeled to some extent on the Italian fascist party, and begin a political defascistization. Then he moved more directly into alignment diplomatically with Britain and the United States in the summer of 1944 tried to score further points by assisting in the efforts to evacuate Jews from Hungary in, uh, in the last months of 1944, uh, take a more liberal stance, uh, and then move in a centrist kind of political direction by the end of the war and shift Spain to the status of a monarchist state, not merely a one-party semi-fascist kind of dictatorship, but a monarchist state in which the monarchy would be run by Franco himself. Change everything formally on top, change nothing in the basic uh, power structure. Mm -hmm. So that by 1947, uh, there was a, a new referendum and the Spanish political system had been turned into a monarchy. It was now the most Catholic regime in the world. He emphasized political Catholicism more than anything else. The defascistization went on a pace. And so this was a progressive transformation that went on over a period of several years. The key circumstance, of course, being not what happened inside Spain, but what happened in Europe as a whole, the onset of the Cold War, which suddenly turned Franco from being the last fascist dictator, as his enemies denounced him, to becoming, by 1953, a very desirable American and Western ally. So by 1953, Franco had become not completely, but partially rehabilitated and a kind of ally, not a member of NATO, uh, but an ally of the United States and a major player in the Western defense system. Now, if we move to the period of the 1960s in particular, 
Spain experienced a period of rapid modernization and economic growth. Supporters argue that these developments were thanks to Franco, while critics say that they occurred despite him. How do you understand the relationship between this period of growth and the Franco regime? Well, Franco had, had uh, three basic goals with the regime. One was to establish a, a totally different kind of new political system that would endure. He failed in that to uh, reestablish a neo-traditional kind of Catholic culture. He succeeded in that initially, but this failed eventually in the long term. And the third was to uh, create a, a prosperous and economically strong uh, modern Spain. And that was the part that really worked. He was determined to redevelop uh, the economy in terms of its basic industrial and agricultural structure from the beginning and worked on that very hard in the 1940s. But Spain had suffered so much from the Civil War and from the, the, the isolation of World War II and the isolation following the war that little progress was made in the 1940s. By 1950, however, the Spanish economy had straightened out and began to, to move ahead very rapidly. He followed a protectionist kind of policy, a very nationalist kind of economic policy that was quite successful during the 1950s with a high growth rate. But it became clear to his leading economic ministers by the end of the 50s that to continue this and build even farther and to develop the economy even more, they had to go to a more liberal system of an international market economy. In other words, if you compare the Franco regime to communist China, Franco was the Mao of the regime, the original dictator, the original hardliner, and he was also the Deng Xiaoping, the reformer of the regime, who moved to the market economy. He didn't like the idea, that was not his notion, but he allowed himself to be convinced by his ministers. And so the liberalization of the economy took place in 1959, became much more open to the international market, and then moved ahead even faster than ever so that the great transformation of Spain economically and socially took place in the last 25 years of Franco from 1950 to 1975. This annoys his political foes a great deal. They want to pretend that Spain was a very backward country in 1975 and that all the development took place after he died, which is a complete falsification of history. The basic change took place under Franco from 1950 to 1975 with a modernized economy uh, that really closed the gap more rapidly during that time than ever before compared with the most advanced parts of Western Europe. Uh, and uh, in many ways was closer to the West European norm when he died than it is at the present time. Uh, along with that, of course, you have enormous social and cultural change. And what Franco did not understand was that the enormous social and cultural change that accompanied modernization was going to undercut his other uh, cultural and political goals. He only got a certain glimpse of that at the very, very end. And by that time, he was too old and too feeble to do anything about it. And that's the next, th next thing I wanted to ask you about, because soon after Franco died in 1975, of course, Spain began a period of transition to democracy that culminated in the Constitution of 1978. Once again, supporters argue that the late Franco regime created the conditions for the transition, while critics say that it occurred despite Franco. Is it possible to find the origins of this political transition in the late Franco period? 
the Franco regime was, was always the same regime, and yet it kept changing and transforming itself all the time and becoming more and more liberal. So that late Francoism was totally different from early Francoism, even though the same person was in charge. Uh, and it had ultimately the same final power structure of personal dictatorship. There was a, a, a great opportunity for political evolution in late Francoism, but he did not intend for it to evolve that far. When Richard Nixon sent Vernon Walters, the deputy director of the CIA, to talk to Franco in 1971, Franco assured Walters that the Americans could realize that Spain would become more liberal after he died, but what he meant was more liberal under the continuation of the Franco structure, not a completely new system. There was, however, by that time, so much freedom in Spain that, in fact, it became clear that the leading political forces in the country were going to want to carry out a, a, a complete transformation after he died. Now, uh, you, you can even look at what I said during that period to see how the perspective had changed. The magazine Foreign Affairs asked me to write uh, something about the future of Spain in 1969 published at the beginning of 1970, five years before the death of Franco. And I said the emphasis would be likely more, would be on greater liberalization, but more continuity than change, 1970. By 1975, just before Franco died, in the last month of his life, I testified at a seminar in a hearing room of the House of Representatives in Washington, here in the United States, to the effect that after Franco died, there's going to be a complete political transformation toward a democratic constitutional monarchy under Juan Carlos. Uh, and that was a change in my position because it was clear that political forces and the direction and valency of political forces had changed so much in Spain that after Franco died, everything was going to go in that direction. And the question was simply whether or not the change would be carried out successfully or not. I suggested that in fact, there was sufficient agreement uh, and the military were sufficiently loyal, having been tamed by Franco, so to speak, that this could be done successfully and even without American intervention, as even the representatives of the Spanish Communist Party were asking for in Washington in June 1975. Uh, so uh, uh, it, it it occurred not because of Franco, but despite Franco. However, it occurred under Franco uh, and a series of changes that took place in, in the liberal late Franco era were what made that possible. To conclude, I, I wanted to speak a bit about the conclusion of your book because in that section, you make a fascinating comparison between Franco and his regime and other 20th century dictators you share with us what some of the similarities and differences you found were? Well, Franco was one of the classic dictators, had a long dictatorship. Uh, he was, uh, uh, along with Salazar in Portugal, one of the two longest lived of, of the right-wing dictators. Uh, he did not fit fully in the fascist category because he defascistized his regime. So he was both semi-fascist and then totally post-fascist. On the other hand, if you judge a dictator by uh, how much the country improved during the dictatorship, he was the best of the individual dictators because no other country made so much improvement during the dictatorship itself. So on the one hand, he was a very long, 
uh, to some extent politically repressive dictator, though not so much in his last years, uh, a real dictator of the first water. On the other hand, uh, of the more liberal dictators, he was the most liberal uh, and the most modern and progressive. So there you have it. You can either take the, the Franco, who was highly repressive, led a, a very bloody struggle uh, with a full-scale repression in his early regime, or the late liberal Franco, who seemed as though he was the benefactor of his country. He was a singular dictator. No one quite liked him. He really inaugurated the Chinese model an entire generation before the Chinese did. And, and it did it successfully, though Spain is a very small country compared to China. So the, the, there was a good Franco and a bad Franco. About 15 years ago, a public opinion poll was taken in Spain. And uh, Spanish people in general were asked, did Franco do more bad things than good things, more good things than bad things? Or would you say that the Franco regime was a mixture of the good and the bad? The plurality went for the last position that the best characterization of Franco was the regime was the mixture of the bad and the good. And I would say that the plurality of the Spanish opinion in 2005 probably had that just about right. Great. Well, um, thank you so much, Professor Payne, for coming on the program and sharing the fascinating um, insights that you've had on the Franco regime, um, well, and Franco's life as a whole through all your years of research. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.